What's up, sports fans? It's time for Let Me Speak. I'm Joe Braverman, and on this show, we discuss the big news in the world of sports as heard from me, myself, and I. Here's what we'll be talking about this week. With only a few weeks to go in the regular season, which teams are in the best spot in the NFL rankings? Plus, what to make of Shohei Otani's historic free agency deal? And the significance of the Lakers' in-season tournament championship. You're listening to episode 97 of Let Me Speak. Let's get things started. Intro, please. Let me speak. Again, we are coming at you here on Tuesday, December 12th, 2023 for the 97th edition of Let Me Speak. As I always do at the top of the show, I thank everyone for tuning in before we've even talked any sports as we get closer and closer to episode 100. I'm, I keep saying it every single week. I'm excited that we'll cross the 100 mark in just a little bit. That might even be the first episode of 2024 is when we hit 100. I'm not... 100% sure when we're going to do it, how we're going to do it. But when we get to 100, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a big celebration. Uh, It's a little bit different, at least today for me, because the sun is out. (laughs) And it's it's been a very rare time where it's always felt like kind of cloudy. We had the the rain and the wind a couple of days ago. So the the fact that I'm recording while the sun is still shining, I mean, yes, it's still in about an hour or so it's going to be gone but uh just looking out the window and seeing uh the sun out is a, a little different at, at least for this time here in December and surprisingly not as cold I mean I know that's coming eventually but uh it's given me enough time to break out the hat and the gloves get everything uh all tightened up and uh ready to go but as we hit December we get into the middle of the month and that means the playoff chase is on in the NFL and I think there's no better time then to reveal our top 10 and our bottom 10 in our NFL rankings. And I took a lot more time than usual uh, for a couple of spots because I'm just, I'm confused. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I'm just confused as to where the, uh, where the NFL is at, you know, in the top and then in the bottom. So I, I really had to do a lot of thinking, you know, there were thoughts about some last minute changes, but I'm set on the 10 at the top, set on the 10 in the bottom, and I thought I'd share that with you. And as we start, as we always do with the top 10, this maybe had to have been the toughest challenge because when you look at the uh, standings right now, that last wildcard spot in the AFC, or all the wildcard spots, I should say, Cleveland's at 8-5, and five, then you have Steelers, Colts, Texans, Broncos, Bengals, and Bills, all at seven and six. And meanwhile, when you look at the bottom, it's almost every team that was at the bottom won their games. Um, but getting back to our top 10, really out of all those teams I looked, I just listed uh, Browns at eight and five, everyone else at seven and six. There's really only two teams I trust and I'm putting them at 10 and nine. The one of the teams I trust is Denver because they have turned things around uh, really quickly they started one and five, and they have gone 
six and one since then, easily taking care of the Chargers. So really the only reason I'm putting the Broncos here is because out of all those teams, uh, the Broncos are one of the teams I trust. They're at number 10. And then at number nine is the other seven and six team that I trust. And that's the Bills because they have that potential, but it's the mistakes and the self-inflicted wounds that have, uh, they're still an issue, but they're not as bad as they were at the beginning of the season. And keep in mind, they've had a really, really tough schedule. I mean, the fact they went into Kansas City and beat the Chiefs, I know there's talk about an offsides call, uh, you know, stuff like that, but Josh Allen is getting better at limiting those mistakes. And they really are the benefit to all this parity in the AFC. So if you're asking me about that 10 and 9, Broncos and Bills I trust because I still have a hard time believing that the Browns are 8 and 5 with four different quarterbacks and that Joe Flacco can look the way he is. Um the Steelers are going through a mess offensively. No Kenny Pickett meets Mitch Trubisky. Um just looks like a mess. The Colts I like Gardner. I said before I'm a Gardner Minshew fan, but I can't trust him to go through an entire season. Texans have a lot of injuries, plus they're a really young team. Uh, Bengals with Jake Browning. I just, I can't see. I, I can't trust them either. So Broncos and Bills are the two teams that are seven and six that I trust right now. I fully trust, and I expect them to make the postseason. And even if any of those other teams make the postseason, I don't expect them to go a really long way. So that's what I see. Uh, Speaking of the Browns, the number eight team is the team that they had beat this past week, and that is the Jaguars. And it was 31-27, and I I didn't move them back, but I didn't move them forward because obviously if you lose, you can't move up in the top ten, at least in, in my eyes, unless there's a bunch of circumstances going on. Um, but the other thing was that on a bad ankle, when, when I was watching it in real time on Monday night football, that looked like season ending, probably the first half of next year too, for Trevor Lawrence. But the fact that it was only a high ankle sprain was best case scenario. And even on that bad ankle, Lawrence had a pretty good day. Yeah. He was 28 of 50, 257 yards and three touchdowns. He did have three picks, and he was sacked four times. Obviously, I, I would credit that bad ankle and the the injury that he's played with. Plus, he didn't have any support from the run game at all, and especially when you get a quarterback basically on one wheel, you need much more support out of the running attack, especially from ETN, who's, had, who's shown flashes but just hasn't been consistent enough. I mean, they only had 58 rushing yards on the day. So that's why sort of for this week, I'm going to give a pass for Jacksonville, I mean, they they do have to keep winning. You know, I, I threw out a bunch of scenarios last week, but this week they need to start winning. And it starts Sunday night against the Ravens, which is going to be a tough task. Um, but they have to keep winning because the Colts and the Texans are right there on their heels. And everyone's joking, oh, what a terrible division the South is. The South has three teams above 500 right now. So this is a good division. Um I think with 100% Trevor Lawrence, this is a really good team, but the fact that he's not 100% and he's not able to be as mobile and escape the pocket as he normally does, you know, pile that on top of the mistakes he just loves to make and the interceptions he loves to throw. I think that's an issue for Jacksonville, and they better hope that he gets back to 
extremely quick, extremely quick. I mean, uh, so there's there's number eight for you at Jacksonville. Uh, number seven, I'm gonna put the Lions here. Um, I said it last week, but they are just on a downward spiral. I mean, yeah, they won against the Saints, but as I mentioned, they blew a big lead, and now they lose to the Bears in Chicago. I mean, this there are just still growing pains for a young team that's on the rise. And really, I look at two things. I look first at Jared Goff. And Goff is having those moments of what drove him out of L.A., how he can't make the big-time throw. He used to do it. He just hasn't done it uh, consecutively. You know, the numbers from last Sunday, 20 of 35, 161 yards, a touchdown, and two picks. I mean, you got to keep in mind, this season, 10 interceptions – is now the most he's had since he's been on the Lions. And he's also been sacked eight times in the last three games. So Goff is concerning me a little bit with what he's done recently. And then secondly, defensively, they have been non-existent. I mean, they're allowing nearly 30 points a game over their last five contests. Um, so, I mean, granted, they did go three and two, I want to say, in that one. But still, this was a Lions team that everyone, I mean, they're still technically in line for a top seed. They just have to start winning some games. But the fact that they have not looked like those same lines of old at the beginning of the year concerns me a little bit because we've seen Dan Campbell. I mean, I said it before, Dan Campbell and the choices uh, going forward on fourth down, stuff like that, that concerns me when it gets to these big-time moments is when you have the record of 9-4, and four, you want to play, play it safe rather than sorry. Um, so I have concerns that they're still not going to be able to learn I mean, they've got to win this Saturday against Denver. They really have to win because otherwise, you know, no, I haven't really taken them seriously as Super Bowl contenders. I thought they had really good potential, but not for a Super Bowl. And now they're tell they're showing me that that you know playoff streak of not winning a game in I don't know thirty years or so uh, that might still it might still be going on unless they turn things around, and it has to start this Saturday. Uh, in Denver so Lions you got some work to do you really do have some work to do same thing with the number 16 that I'm putting here and that's the Miami Dolphins I mean once again last week against the commanders I thought this is where it turns they they put up 45 against Washington that offense looks the same but now here they come hosting the Titans and they're once again back on the downswing now everyone wants to make the excuse for Tua not having Tyree kill but, I mean, there's still plenty of other options that they had. And and they worked out for the most part. Mostert had two touchdowns. They got Jalen Waddell into the game. Their defense looked really good, forcing some turnovers for Tennessee. But it's, again, big-time moments. Similar to Detroit, The lot, uh, for the Lions, the Dolphins seem to just let things go when they get into these big-time moments. I mean, yeah, you forced three turnovers against Tennessee, but you were up 14 points with three minutes to go. That just can't happen. It can't happen. You're up two touchdowns with three minutes to go. I mean, granted, Mike Vrabel had some guts going for two on the first touchdown, and then when they get the ball back, they just march right down the field. But still, that can't happen. So this goes back to all the opponents that the Dolphins have lost to. And now when you have these uh, critical situations against the Tennessee team, you let them come back, and then you don't even look the same when you're trying to come back and win. So Miami still concerns me how Tua 
is not making use of the weapons around him. Because as I said at the beginning of the year, he's the driving force for how far Miami goes. And right now, you know, Tyreek Hill or no Tyreek Hill, he's becoming an issue. He's becoming a big issue. So I'll be interested to see what they do against the Jets next week. Um, But again, if they've got these leads late, you know, unless they're winning by three scores, then you can feel comfortable about a win. Otherwise, you can't trust them. You can't trust them against a big opponent or with a small lead. That's just me. That is just me. Uh, The top five is where it gets really, really interesting. A lot of shuffling around. I'm putting number five. I'm putting the Eagles here because they have fallen pretty quickly. And last Sunday night against the Cowboys really kind of drove home the point for me. I mean, the offense didn't get any touchdowns. It took a uh, defensive score um, to get into double digits for Philly. I mean, the fact that the fact is this is a Philly team that's driven on their run game, you know, and um, making plays happen, you know, rather than Jalen Hurts going down the field with deep shots. They it's the talent around them. So it's the the play calling of Nick Sirianni, the way he's able to make motion to get the running backs going and then short throws to either Devontae Smith or A.J. Brown and let him work. But there's been no running game at all. You can't win with only 106 team rushing yards. It's not effective enough. But even more than the running game, it's the turnovers. I mean, last Sunday, three more fumbles. They now have a minus four turnover margin. And I say it over and over, you can't be a championship team with a minus in your turnover margin. Jalen Hurts now has 18 giveaways on the year. He's in the top five in most interceptions at 10. He's in the top six in most fumbles, which is eight. And the passing game can't be as sure if you don't have the run game. So it all starts with running the ball much more effectively. That's where it's got to come down. I don't know if that has to be designed draws for Jalen Hurts, if it has to be DeAndre Swift, Kenneth Gainwell, Boston Scott, those guys getting more involved. But... I I don't know. I said something with Philly looks off. And then when you have your defense trying to bail you out against a high-profile offense in the Cowboys, that's going to be an issue. So, I mean, yeah, the Eagles are still, like, up there contending for that top seed, but I can't say for sure that they're going to have a a deep playoff run considering the struggles that they're going through. So it's it's a big jump. I think this has to be the lowest, the – Eagles have been, you know, uh, since we've done these power rankings, uh, getting into that fifth spot. But going on to number four, I think there are more concerns right now in Kansas City than Philadelphia. The Chiefs are now eight and five after losing to the Bills, and it's going to take a miracle to get that top seed. I mean, three losses in their last four games. My goodness. I mean, this is where I want to spend most of my time because not only what happened on the field, but off the field made uh, some noise too. Obviously, the receiver room is going to be getting another tongue lashing after Kadarius Toney cost him once again with a call that was blatantly offsides, which nullified, I think, one of what could have been one of the great plays ever with Travis Kelsey lateraling it to Toney, basically from one end of the field to the other, and getting that go-ahead score. It gets nullified by Toney not even checking with the official. You know how that happened happens you know for those that don't know 
receivers, what they'll do is they'll line up. They'll sort of check with the official. They'll put their hand up and then they'll sort of look over. And usually the official will just let them know and that'll let them back up. But Tony doesn't do the basic of things, the basic of things. And I don't want to hear any arguments that, oh, it was offsides. You, it was barely offsides. You can't make that call. No, you can make that call when it's that blatant. You had the center and Tony basically head to head with each other. Von Miller and Tony's helmets were basically blocking each other from the camera view. It wasn't offsides. So there's no argument to that. But then you go off of the field 24 hours later and Patrick Mahomes gets completely fed up. He's going after officials having to be held back. He's saying in the press game, oh, Travis Kelsey's legacy and his Hall of Fame career just got ruined by that play. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. You cannot do that. Everyone wants to make comparisons how Patrick Mahomes is the modern-day Tom Brady. And yes, Tom Brady had his moments of frustration um, I remember there was a Monday night game. He went after an official right after the game, but then he said in the post game a mere hour later that he shouldn't have done that. And there have been multiple plays where Brady has said, um, I could have done a better job. It is what it is. Yada, yada, yada. Mahomes and Andy Reid complaining about a clear offsides call was embarrassing. It was an embarrassing week. For the Kansas City Chiefs, not just on the field, but off the field. I mean, luckily, Mahomes today was able to, you know, apologize for what happened. You know, he knew he looked back. It was clear offsides. He said that he said he shouldn't have complained about the call when he went to midfield with Josh Allen. Because if you remember uh, when Allen and Mahomes met at midfield after the game, he was basically saying like, offensive offsides can you believe that essentially you know it was much more darker than that but i i won't get into it here and then you had josh allen just standing there all confused so at least he owns up to it now but regardless of if you own up to it two days later instead of one day later then that's an issue that's an issue when you're i mean it's one thing to say that i don't agree with the call it's it's another thing to say everyone's legacy is now tarnished. And the fact that he had to get held back by an official on a blatant call, you know, that's another thing. If you get held back by a call that was clearly wrong, like if it, it was a uh, pass interference that was, that was clear and they didn't throw a flag, then you can get a little bit upset. But this was a blatant offsides, blatant offsides. And you can just sense now, uh, just looking big picture, that there is frustration in Kansas City. Because the receivers, outside of maybe Travis Kelsey and possibly Rashi Rice, their rookie, there is no connection between the receivers and Mahomes. They've got the most dropped passes in the league. Most dropped passes. And not only that, you have to have Mahomes throw so many times because you only got 82 yards on the ground. I mean, granted, you didn't have Isaiah Pacheco, but even when Pacheco was in there, he doesn't make a difference. So I've had concerns about this offense. Now it's legit. Now these concerns are legit. I mean, they'll probably be able to write the ship temporarily when they play the Patriots in New England because almost everyone beats the Patriots except for the Jets, the Bills, and the Steelers. <laughs> but they should be they should be fine on Sunday. But big picture, this is the next test for Patrick Mahomes. 
He's had to play every postseason game at home, the comforts of Arrowhead Stadium. And like I said, unless a miracle happens, this is going to be a real test for him to go on the road and have playoff appearances like that. And he's probably hoping and praying and wishing that he can go in a time machine, go back to 2022 and say, I don't think we should have traded Tyreek Hill. I think we probably should have given him a contract for all that money. Because imagine where the Chiefs would be now with a defense like that and the offense with, once again, that three-headed monster of Mahomes, Hill, and Kelsey. So eyes on the Kansas City Chiefs because they might be at four now, but they could be a whole lot worse. And I mean it, a whole lot worse. So that that was really the big story of the NFL uh, from this past week. There were obviously some other teams that played out there, and there was a lot of shuffling. This is a brand new top three, a brand new top three in these power tens. And number three, I'm going to put the Baltimore Ravens here squeaking out a win over the Rams in overtime. Highland Wallace playing the hero with the game-winning punt return touchdown, 76 yards. I got to say, I watched this game from start to finish. I was very entertained uh, by the Ravens and their offense, especially Lamar Jackson, the fact that he was committed to throwing the ball so much. I mean, 43 pass attempts. Yeah, he only completed 24 of them, but over 300 yards, three touchdowns. Yeah, he had a pick, but I like seeing that from Lamar. When he has to make those plays and he has to throw the ball a lot more, that's what I like to see. I don't like to see him so focused on the run game. I understand sometimes on that day, for whatever opponent it is, that's what will have to be the game plan. But I like when they can win the game by throwing the ball because Lamar, for so at the beginning part of his career, was so focused, and maybe still is now and again, at focusing on the run, scrambling out of the pocket, He's not, when he's escaping the pocket, he used to just be dedicated to the run and go. Now he's being a little bit more patient. Um, do I still buy that they can make a deep run? I'm almost there. I'm almost there. Because this defense against high-level passing offenses really concerns me. I mean, they allowed over 400 yards to LA, 282 of them in the air. So defensively, especially in the secondary, because it's been so banged up, and now Kyle Hamilton uh, is dealing with a knee injury. It gives me a little bit of concern, and I think I'll be fully sold uh, if they can beat the Jaguars this week. I, I I think I'll be fully okay by saying I would pick the Ravens to go to the AFC Championship um, because right now they're the number one team in the AFC. They have that number one seat, and quite frankly, um, they're going to need it, and they're going to earn it um, considering that the offense that they have. So I'm almost there. I'm almost there. On Baltimore. Still kind of a wait and see period for me on them. Number two, this is the highest that this team has been, but I have to considering the the wins that they've had. The Cowboys, 10 and 3, beating the Eagles 33 to 13. I mean, that just tipped the scale for me about another 15%. Because I won't be fully I'll basically put it out there like this. And I've said it week after week that I'm not buying into the Cowboys making the Super Bowl until they do it. I'm still on that path, but I'm getting convinced with the regular season every single time. Um, I fully believe that this is one of the top offenses in the league. I mean, they've had nearly 400 yards in all five straight victories, I believe. Um, they've scored 30 or more in all their home games, 
They have the best uh, scoring offense at over 32 points per game. And honestly, Dak Prescott is giving me legit thoughts about him being the MVP. Top three in pass yards, the, the league leader in pass touchdowns, and he's only thrown six picks this year. Now, I'm not going to say he's definitely the MVP, but I would give him much more consideration than I, I would have maybe a couple of weeks ago. Um, because when they had these blowout wins, remember, it was to the Giants, the Commanders, some really bad teams out there. But now you get a 20-point win over Philly, who is arguably one of the NFC's best, and you get that victory? That changes things. That changes things for me. I mean, now they got to go on the road into Buffalo. If they can do the same thing that they did to the Eagles, to the Bills, again, that moves the needle a little bit more. Like, officially, I'm at a 35% buy-in right now. A win over the Bills will probably get me to 45, 50, somewhere on that. But I'm still not going to... If they can get to the NFC Championship, then I can, you know... I, I would feel comfortable if I had to pick them. I would um, in a championship game. You know, it's, it's again, still a wait and see for Dallas, but they are just making things really hard for a uh, consideration standpoint, at least uh, in my eyes. But the number one team, uh, this probably isn't going to change unless something drastic happens, and that's the Niners. Another win, this time over the Seahawks. I mean, the, I don't even have to spend that much time on this because there's nothing we didn't know already that came out of this game. Brock Purdy had nearly 400 yards and two touchdowns. Christian McCaffrey had 145 rush yards, including that 72-yard scamper on the first play. Uh, Debo, 149 receiving. Ayuk, 126. Kittle, 76. They've got a super strong defense. I mean, there's nothing more to say. There's nothing more to say except this is the best team in football. This is my Super Bowl pick, even though I had concerns during that three-game losing streak. That's now gone. Um, I might have to go on the tape if I actually fully got off of their wagon being like, oh, they're not going anywhere. Um, but I'm riding the Niners. Niners are my Super Bowl pick. I think they win it all because they just have talent aplenty. Like, it's unbelievable what they have. Um, so there you go. A lot of shakeup in that top five more specifically and there is a lot of storylines to really pay attention to when we get into week 15. But now we got to get to our bottom 10. And again, a lot of movement going around. It felt like almost every team had won it. Um, I think this one, you know, it's been a first time. This is a first time for uh, the bottom 10 team right here, but I'm going Chargers 5-8. and eight, And now a fractured finger ends Justin Herbert's season. I mean, let's face it. They weren't going anywhere because their coach is uh, a boob. Uh, with all his fourth down decisions. Um, I fully expect him to be fired at the end of the year. It's just, it's crazy that they have all this talent on offense, but they continue to just miss defensively. And even when they try, they completely fail. I mean, Khalil Mack has probably been their best defensive decision, but then they give the big contract to JC Jackson. He's not even on the roster anymore. I don't, I don't know what you do to fix uh, this defense. I mean, they lost Joey Bosa, yeah, but not even he made a big difference uh, for me. So the Chargers, this this was a playoff team at one point, and I fully believe it's their head coach that has gotten in their way, along with a couple of injuries like a Mike Williams. 
now and again. Uh, number nine, a big move here for the Titans, nearly getting out of that top 10. Uh, I mentioned what they did uh, at the end of the game with the Dolphins coming back from down 14 with three minutes left. First road win of the season for Tennessee. I That blew my mind. That absolutely blew my mind that Tennessee had not won on the road yet. But this is why I was so... I was a fan of Will Levis um, when he came in. He made, of course, you remember he came in for uh, Tannehill. Uh, he had the, that four touchdown game, three of them to Hopkins in the first one. And now look what he's done. He leads the rally on the road. They come up with the victory. And you even saw it on the sidelines after that game winner. He was all fired up. And you could just see that Mike Vrabel and the rest of the team has his support. I am a big fan of Will Levis. I think the Titans have found their quarterback for the future. Give them maybe two or three years, and the Titans can be right back uh, to where they were a couple of years ago. Because I still think, you know, Hopkins is nice, but he's on the wrong side of 30. You know, you reload on the receiving core. Um, you just tighten up the defense a little bit, and then this can be a team that gets themselves back into playoff contention. So last Monday uh, made my rooting of Will Levis official. I'm a big, big fan of Will Levis. Um, what I'm not a big fan of, though, is the offense of our number eight team, and that's the Raiders. Oh, man, what a lot. And I thought the uh, 6 nothing win by the Chargers over the Patriots was a slog. How about 3 to nothing indoor, which I believe I was watching NFL primetime. That's the lowest scoring game for an indoor stadium in history. The fact they were inside in Las Vegas, no weather affecting at all. And it was three to nothing. And the only reason the Vikings aren't on this list is because they're seven and six and they actually won. They definitely could be on this list at seven and six. But if you're the Raiders and you put up zero, like it, it was just wrapped up. Their offense for the entire year was just wrapped up in last Sunday's loss. 202 yards, eight first downs, three of 14 on third down. Yeah, that was a nice little honeymoon phase that they had with Antonio Pierce. But when you're going from... Jimmy Garoppolo, Brian Hoyer to Aiden O'Connell. Not a pretty sign. Not a pretty sign. And I don't know why it took me this long to get the Raiders back in there, but here they are now at five and eight. Also at five and eight, but getting a victory was the Bears. I had mentioned the Lions uh, and the Bears, Chicago winning that game 28 to 13. I think the question is still out there on Justin Fields, even though there are some reports there saying, oh, with that number one pick. Um, they might be going quarterback and they're going to move on to Justin Fields. I still think there's a little bit of monitoring to watch for because we got four games left for Chicago and, you know, wasn't the greatest numbers out there for Fields. Uh, 19 of 33, 223 yards and a touchdown. Also had 12 rushes for 58 yards and a touchdown. He's shown what you can do. I'm, I'm not ready to give up on Justin Fields just yet. I, I'm not there just yet. I mean, if they can win against the Browns, that would be huge against one of the top defenses in football. They can get a win like uh win and Justin Fields limit limits his mistakes. Then I can confidently say, you know, you might want to, because they have two five, top five picks, you know, maybe they just get a quarterback to compete with Justin Fields. Um, and then it's kind of a wait and see, but at least for me, I'm not ready to give up on Justin Fields just yet. No way. I still need some time with that. Number six, I'm going to put the Commanders here at 4-9. Of course, they were idle with a bye week. 
Um, so nothing significant there, but they're still one of the worst teams in football. They could probably be moving lower, uh, depending on how things some how some things go. Um, nothing new there for the commanders. Number five, I gotta put the Jets here. I'm sorry, but where in the heck did that second half come from? Where they get 30 points and knock off Houston 30 to six in the rain at home. I mean, where did the Zach Wilson come from from? 300 yards passing, two touchdowns. You got to keep in mind, Zach Wilson's only thrown for 300 or more yards three times in his career, including Sunday. Three times. I'm not saying that there's hope for uh, Zach Wilson. I'm not going to overreact to that because the Texans had their issues. CJ Stroud didn't have his two favorite targets. It was obviously rain, rainy conditions. And it was just, I feel like it was one of those days because it was scoreless getting into halftime. It was 0-0 at halftime, but how about the Jets? I mean, this is probably just going to be a one-week thing. They'll probably get their doors blown out by Miami next week. I was just shocked to see 30 points from a New York Jets offense led by Zach Wilson. Very, very surprised at that. Uh, Number four, we got to stay in New York and go with the Giants, who got their victory over the Packers on Monday Night Football. I'm sorry. How can you not love this story from Tommy DeVito? I mean... He is as New York Italian as it gets. I mean, you saw before the game, his agent in the hat, basically like a character out of The Godfather. His parents, obviously, he's still living with his parents. They were in the stands doing the celebration and absolutely loving it. And the team loves him. The team loves him. I mean, he's probably not going to get the start when Daniel Jones is back and healthy. But you want to have him on the roster for sure. You want to have him on the roster, especially when you get a win uh, and a come-from-behind win over a playoff-caliber team like the Packers. I mean, it's such a good story. I mean, it's probably going to, you know, drown out at some point, but there's just some kind of energy that the Giants were looking for. And honestly, I think DeVito might have saved Brian Dable's job. I really think he did, because I was calling for his job when they were struggling with Daniel Jones and their lack of an offensive line. But now that they've won these games and there's sort of this new life in the Giants and in their fans. I think Dayball is safe. I think he can ride out another season uh, with with this Giants team. So I'm just enjoying the, the Tommy DeVito story that's going on in the Meadowlands. Moving into the top three, I'm leaving the Cardinals at number three. They were idle on a bye week. Again, it was a lost season when they had Josh Dobbs starting the way instead of Kyler Murray. Um, they're probably not even going to have a chance against the Niners. I'd be very shocked if they even make that a competitive game. Um, but it, it's a lost season for the Cardinals, and they're hoping that with uh, whatever high pick they might get in the draft, um, they can rebuild uh, and get back to at least semblance of a good team. You know, that's in my eyes. Number two, we're going with the Patriots here, winning on Thursday night against the Steelers. We'll talk more about uh, the Patriots when we get to let's get local, but 21 points in that first half. I mean, what a first half for Bailey Zappi getting three touchdown passes. And you saw it in the post game, how they're behind Bill Belichick. I, I was very shocked to see the offense put up what they did. Now, granted, they almost blew it. They almost blew it because they went scoreless and that ball was not moving as well as it did in the first half. And they literally let Mitchell Trubisky back into things. Um, so that's why I kind of have to leave them at number two because it was a good first half and that's all they needed, but they were very, very close to letting that game get away and a lot of self-inflicted wounds uh, by Pittsburgh. 
But as always, number one team is the Carolina Panthers. Another loss, another dismal loss, this time to the Saints, 28-6. to They're going to have to reload everything. And I mean everything, because now they had a punt blocked. Um, I mean, it's very hard not to write off Bryce Young, but he got sacked four times. He only threw for 137 yards, 13 of 36. It's it's bad. It is bad for the Panthers, and they don't even have a top draft pick. Their pick went to uh, Chicago. So it's going to be a long time, I think, for uh, Carolina to try and reload this thing. Hopefully, I hope Bryce Young is the guy. I, I hope he's the guy because it's still, it's still early. And I know, you know, as I said, hard to write him off, but I would love to see Bryce Young get another shot. I, I really would because it, it's chaos right now with, with Dave Tepper and what he's got going on there. So there you go. That's the uh, the top 10. Again, or the bottom 10, a lot of movement around that bottom spot, uh, 10, 9, 8. You know, I'm sure with the, the loaded, loaded that it is, you know, in the AFC and the NFC, I'm sure some things will break off and separate and we'll get our teams that are firmly on either side of the coin. But of course, the NFL, surprisingly, in December was not the biggest story of the weekend. When we come back, we'll talk about the record-breaking free agency deal in the world of baseball, including the generational talent that is Shohei Otani. We go now to baseball, and the hot stove of free agency is heating up. And not only was it heating up, it was set ablaze on fire this past Saturday because we finally got the news that we had been waiting for. Which team did Shohei Otani sign with? The biggest domino in free agency finally falls, and we know where he's going. The generational Otani is staying in L.A., but he's going to the Dodgers on a historic, historic deal. 10 years, $700 million. That's right. Let me just enunciate it a little bit slower for those that didn't hear it. $700 million. Okay? For 10 years, you're doing the math, $70 million a year. But wait, 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 wait. It's not $70 million a year because we heard the day after that Otani is going to defer $680 million of his contract until the deal is done. You know what that means? He's only going to be getting $2 million per year. That's right. A dude signs for $700 million, but will take $680 million of it later, 20 years later. And during the time... With the Dodgers, he'll only be making two per year. That is just mind-boggling. Mind-boggling at all. Now, this has been done before, where uh, payments can get deferred later on. Of course, there's the great story of Bobby Bonilla uh, with the New York Mets. He gets paid a million dollars, I think, until like 2035 or 20-something like that. Um, I know there are payments that the Sox are still doing with Manny Ramirez uh, at that time. So this has been done before, but it's never been done with this ginormous amount of money 
I mean, the fact that Otani is only getting $2 million per year means that the the book is still wide open for the Dodgers to go get more of these high-priced uh, free agents, like a Yoshinobu Yamamoto, um, all these other guys, like a Blake Snell, all these other big Nick Cody Bellinger, just naming a few names out there. So this has been done before, and everyone wants to argue that, how can this be allowed? How can this be legal? Well, it is legal because it's been done before, but it's never been done with this historic amount of money. So I don't, I mean, yes, I have an issue with it being deferred that many money, but it's within the rule books, you know? It's within the rule books. Now, if it were me, I would probably, after this deal, go to the uh, commissioner's board uh, in the MLB and just basically say, listen, can we put sort of a price tag on these sort of deferred money contract things? Um, because, you know, maybe guys can do it with like a $20 million a year or $30 million a year, um, those kind of deals, not to a $700 million a year. So that that's what I would do. Um I don't, I mean, I'm just shocked that Otani decided to go to this route and decide to only take $2 million per year. I guess he's just banking on, um, you know, having whatever kind of year he's having. He basically, like, was saying, okay, which one of you teams are suckers and are going to take? And then he decides to be financially smart, only gather $20 million over these 10 years that he's going to be playing with the Dodgers. And then when he's done with baseball, probably depending on whenever that is, he'll just be making 600, $680 million. So I, I, I don't have an issue with taking that contractual route. I would just say, don't be surprised if the rule book on these kind of deferred payments um, gets changed a little bit uh, come next off season. Just don't be surprised. Now, in terms of him signing with the Dodgers themselves, um, I'm not surprised at all. I had a feeling that he would probably stay out West. Um, you know, the Dodgers were the leading candidates uh, to begin with because it sounded like that he enjoyed hitting in California. I mean, yes, Anaheim and L.A. are two different things, uh, different places, but he probably enjoyed uh, being on the West Coast, um, and he would rather go to a winning campaign. So, you know, the Angels aren't going anywhere. Of course, he's not going to re-sign with the Angels if he wanted to win. So he's going to go to the Dodgers, uh, of course. Now, the payment, I thought was, I mean, it was way off. You know, there were rumors about $400 million, $500 million, even $600 million, but $700 million. I mean, we know what route the Dodgers are going for in their chance uh, to make moves and succeed. And that's to uh, pay every single penny that they have to get uh, these mom, uh, these big time players, and sure enough, they get a they get a discount. They get a discount by only having to give them uh, two million dollars each year. So, I mean, that estimation was way off. Now, what does Otani do for the Dodgers? I think, I mean, it their lineup is just so dangerous right now. And I could say that LA is the title favorites. The only issue, though, is that we have been saying that for years now. I mean. This was a team that had a lineup consisting of Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman and Max Muncy, uh, just to name a few guys. You know, they had big, powerful bats. Yeah, they add another one. But in historic, I mean, just going in history, you can't buy yourself a championship. I mean, yes, Texas did that, but they had corresponding pieces. I mean, 
we've said that the Braves are favorites and the Dodgers are the favorites and the Astros are the favorites. And only a few times has that come to fruition. I mean, look at the Dodgers last year and they totally choke it away uh, to Arizona. Um, so, I mean, does Otani change the pitching? Does he? Uh, no, honestly, no, he doesn't. Because his first year, he's not pitching at all. And then you're going to trust the guy who's coming off two Tommy John surgeries. So I don't know if he's just going to be their full-time DH for all these 10 years, but I'm not going to come out here and say, oh, Otani makes the Dodgers World Series favorites. I mean, that's probably what Vegas wants you to think and all the uh, odds makers want you to think. But I'm here to tell you, don't bank on it just yet because we've seen these loaded teams before. And how many times do they actually win a World Series? Very few times. Very few times. So I was just more struck at the contract more than him going to the Dodgers itself. And I'm not going to stand here and say that Otani will make the Dodgers World Series champions. I don't even know if they'll get one in those 10 years, considering all the, the pieces that they have. Maybe they'll get it one year or two years, but I'm not here to tell you this is all of a sudden going to be a dynasty now that Otani is uh, in the market and now on the Dodgers. So I would like to see it play out. I want to see how Otani plays in that Dodger blue, how he can uh, work together with Freeman and Betts and all those other pieces in the Dodger lineup. Uh, it'll be... Interesting to see how Dodgers, uh, how they're going to play it out and how they're going to treat Otani now for the next 10 years. The fact you're only giving him $2 million. So hopefully that helps out and get some more uh, names out there in free agency. And we can talk about some more baseball offseason in the coming weeks. But there's still much more topics rather than the NFL week and Otani's mega deal. We've got more to touch on as we hit into our quick hit segment coming up next. time to get to the subjects and the topics that we didn't get to in our first two segments didn't quite dominate the headlines let's go to our quick hit segment five topics uh that have still been going on in the world of sports uh that we need little sub segments for so i think first off we gotta go to basketball because the in-season tournament has come to an end and it turns out the lakers that's right the la lakers historic franchise gets to add another championship um my question is, why are they celebrating like they just won the whole thing? Like they won the actual NBA championship, okay? This is an in-season tournament. It doesn't really do much for me. Like that championship didn't even count for the regular season. And I thought LeBron James was a guy that looks big picture than anything else. So I don't understand why they had to go. No, I'm sure that like with um, the NBA, they probably told him, hey, we're going to have all this pageantry after the game, stand on the court as a team, blah, 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 blah. But to the locker room popping champagne? No, you don't need to be doing that. Not at all. I mean, it doesn't do much for me in the long run. I'm not going to say, oh, the Lakers are now going to be NBA title favorites uh, after winning this tournament. doesn't really do much for me, no. I still think they're one of the best teams in the NBA, but I wasn't going to crown them champions after winning this. I mean, it's so silly. Now they're apparently hanging a banner. That's just so silly. Like, this is a historic Lakers franchise that's won 17 NBA titles. And now they're going to hang an in-season tournament banner next to it. 
I mean, that's just ridiculous. That's so ridiculous. Now, for the tournament itself, the rumors are next season could guarantee a playoff spot for whoever wins it. I like that. I'm excited for that. And I really want to see that put into fruition because then it gives more incentive rather than just uh, the half a million dollar cash prize uh, for all the players. Like a playoff spot actually wouldn't make it much more uh, incentivizing for all these players rather than just uh, being the first and hanging a mediocre banner or whatever. Um, so that's what I'm, that's just overall thoughts on the end season tournament. I thought it was a good tournament. I would do away with the courts, um, do away with the scoring margin, but overall from a competitive standpoint, I liked it. I was a big fan. I wouldn't, I'm not complaining about it. Not at all. I wouldn't be, I mean, I wouldn't be upset if it was gone next year. I wouldn't be upset if they brought it back. Um, so that that's just how I am on the end season tournament. Um, one team that wasn't even a factor in that tournament was the Pistons. And I hate, I have, I can't ignore it because they are on a horrible, horrible losing streak. The Detroit Pistons have lost 20 games in a row, 20 games. And I believe the record was like 26 from a Philly team that was still in the middle of their process. Now, this was a team in Detroit I thought was going to be on the rise. I thought with the selection they made with Cade Cunningham, with uh, um, Duran, uh, Ivy, and Stewart, and then they get Monty Williams, I thought this was going to be a team that was going to be on the rise. But now they're, they just look lifeless. And it's going to take another 10 years for them to rebuild what they tried to rebuild. This is just a horrible, horrible losing streak for the Pistons. I hope they break it soon because you got to keep in mind, this is a franchise in Detroit that has produced, you know, Isaiah Thomas, Bill Lambeer. Um, Of course, they had the big run in 04 when they knocked off the Mighty Lakers. Like, this is a historic franchise. And for them to be going through this is... It's kind of sad for me. <laughs> it's kind of sad to see the Pistons losers of 20 straight games. I hope they can break it before they reach uh, 26. You know, wait to be seen there. Moving back to football, though, going to the college ranks. Uh, the Heisman Trophy was given out this past Saturday, and Jaden Daniels out of LSU comes away with it. I mean, look, just looking at some of the stats that Daniels has produced, I mean, 50 touchdowns, 3,500 yards passing, 1,000 on the ground. I mean, I've talked so much with um, Nick Fitzy Stevens and Andy Hart on WEEI talking about potential draft picks. There was a thought that some teams could go uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. early on and then try and trade uh, to get into a, a second-round pick to get this guy, Jane Daniels. This guy is just rocketing up the mock drafts. He went from a late pick to potentially being a top five. I mean, there's arguments that he could be getting in the way of uh, Caleb Williams and Drake May uh, for some of these top picks. So, gee, what a historic season for Jane Daniels in LSU. I mean, I had a feeling he was going to do some good things when he had that 600-yard game uh, <clears throat> earlier in the year. But so impressed, so impressed with um, Jaden Daniels, and I thought he earned it. I thought he earned it. You know, they don't give the Heisman to receivers. And then the other quarterbacks that they put in there, like Penix and Bonix, thought I thought didn't deserve it. So I kind of had a feeling he was going to go to Jaden Daniels. And now he maybe just secured himself a uh, top 10 draft pick at the, the very minimum for uh, going into next year's draft if he wanted to. But I had mentioned Drake May, the aforementioned quarterback of UNC. Uh, he made it official over the weekend. He's 
officially going to declare for the NFL draft. He'll skip the bowl game for uh, North Carolina. No surprise here, considering he's uh, the second quarterback currently listed behind Caleb Williams. And in recent weeks, there seems to be a debate between him and Caleb Williams um, regarding that topic, especially if it's going to be the Bears or the Cardinals, maybe the Patriots. Um, Honestly, I've seen a couple of clips of him. And I probably would still take Caleb Williams, but if the combine comes around and he puts up some some good numbers uh, for a quarterback, um, you know, I wouldn't be upset for a team that would uh, take him. So I think Drake May he he does have a lot of potential, but remember the last North Carolina quarterback to to come out and have this high uh, high stock was uh, Mitchell Trubisky, and uh, look what's going on there. So <laughs> um, this the stock the draft stock is nice for him, but in terms of will he succeed? I don't know. I I just don't know. You know. Um, but lastly here, we go to the golf world, and uh, another big name is joining the Live Tour, getting out of the PGA. The third-ranked golfer in the world, John Rahm, is leaving the PGA Tour. I think the contract was like $300 million to go join the uh, Saudi Tour for uh, Live Golf. And honestly, I was very surprised. I was surprised he made the move because... When the uh, when the feud was going on between PGA and Liv, you know he was one of these uh, I guess soldiers kind of defending the PGA Tour. I mean he was against like going the fifty four hole route instead of the seventy two, and now that he's going to live, I mean it just sounds a little hypocritical for me. And I was a big fan of John Ron, but apparently he's got all his eggs in the basket. Um, he won the Masters, which means he can be invited to all the majors. Um, but in terms of the PGA, it's a big blow. It's a big blow to see a top three golfer and one of the rising stars in the PGA. I was a big fan. I, I still am a big fan of uh, John Rom, but to see him make this move is very surprising for me. And I don't know, you know, he does say he's gonna expect he's gonna accept and expect a lot of backlash for it. Um, I see it more for the comments side of things. I I think if he didn't make those comments, you know, defending the PGA from Live, then it would have been another story, but. You know, he outwardly at times was going against uh, Liv. And now to see him join the tour is very is very surprising. And I think he's going to get, he is going to get a lot of backlash. But hey, if he says he's set up, you know, I'm not going to argue that whatever kind of position financially that he's uh, he's in for himself. So there you go. John Rahm going to Liv, Heisman, uh, some NBA action. That's uh, some of the topics we had to cover, but... We go from the national standpoint to a city standpoint, and Boston City, that is, as we dive into our Let's Get Local segment, which includes a conversation with a very special guest. So stay tuned in just a little bit. This is our city. All right, let's dive into it. Our Let's Get Local segment of the week. And we've got a fun conversation coming up in just a little bit. Um, That's just a little tease for you. Uh, SMT, as we like to call it, small market tease. Um, I think everyone, though, is talking about, at least in the the city, uh, the Patriots deciding to go ahead and win over uh, the Steelers on Thursday Night Football. Um, They do keep their draft position, but... A lot of people are not happy that they decide to win. I think everyone is starting to embrace the tank now. They want them to go after 
uh, one of those top picks. So this win might have come at a worse time. But, um, I mean, I'm not concerned about it. I'm, I'm not really worried, you know, considering that their draft position didn't quite move, especially with a Giants win. The Cardinals were idle. Um, I mean, the Jets won, obviously. So, I mean, I'm I'm not too concerned by it. I mean, we know Carolina is going to be the worst team, which means Chicago is going to get that first pick. I mean, even if they slide to the number three pick, I'm not going to be that concerned at all, you know, because the draft is deep. And I think there are a lot of needs uh, for this New England team, not just quarterback, but I think they need to upgrade the receiver room. I think they need to find a different tackle. Uh, on the left side, because I don't think Trent Brown is all that interested in playing for New England anymore. Um, I think they need a little bit more athleticism at linebacker, maybe another defensive lineman. Um, so so there are positional needs out there. So I'm not really worried about them losing a, a draft position, you know. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a draft person, so I can't tell you like, oh, they have to pick this guy because you're going to regret it in the future. I don't know that. I sort of look... Um, you know, once once the years pass by, then we can make discussions uh, about the draft. So, I mean, the, the game itself, as I said uh, during our, our power ranking segment, um, the first half is all they needed. Bailey Zappi looked really good. Uh, three touchdowns, including two to Hunter Henry. But again, it was that second half where, oh, that's the offense that we're kind of used to, not being able to move the ball. Uh, but I mean, again, Zappi limiting the, the big mistakes that Mac Jones used to make. Um, was uh is really the key as to why he's staying uh in that quarterback position. And honestly, like we talked about it in the post game, myself, Fitzy, and John Lyons, um, th- this is a guy I think might have just kept just earned his spot on next year's roster. I think I don't know if you can have you know Mac Zappy and whichever quarterback you draft um on that roster. I think you have to trade Mac Jones, but Zappy is someone I think you can probably keep around because I think. You know, he's not going to be this great backup, um, but he's at least a serviceable backup that the team seems to get behind uh, when he pulls out uh, victories like this. And even, you know, speaking of afterwards, um, you know, you had players coming to the defense of Bill Belichick. You had Jabril Pepper saying, like, I'm tired of the flack he's getting. And you have uh, Zappy and Hunter Henry with the praise of Belichick. So I... I guess maybe it's kind of leaning me towards, okay, maybe Belichick is going to stick around. I do still think that change is going to be needed, and that includes Belichick not being the coach anymore or a part of the personnel department. Um, so I I guess Belichick is sticking around if the players still have faith in him. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure of that. I still am going on record saying that this team doesn't go anywhere until Bill Belichick is not in that position anymore. And of course that conversation got brought up over the weekend because during the army Navy game at Gillette stadium, college game day was there and we got to see an appearance by Robert Kraft and uh, from Bill Belichick. And um, it was near the end of the interview where uh, Pat McAfee decides to uh, come in, make a comment being like, you know, you had a great franchise. Then Kraft just says we like winning and sure enough, McAfee, uh, McAfee comes with the response of, I don't envy your position and what's about to happen. And then uh, you could hear a lot of crickets in the background, just sort of being like. So uh, six-time champion, owner of the Patriots, uh, Robert Kraft. <laughs> he saw Reese Davis try and get in there as soon as he could. And 
you know, the conversations being made, like, was it a big deal? Is it not a big deal? We played it a lot on Ken and Curtis uh, this Saturday. Um, I got to tell you, I'm not. I like I like Pac-Mac. I'll just say I'm a fan of McAfee. I like he's very entertaining. Um, he's basically all over the sports media circuit. Um, I don't think he was doing anything intentionally being like trying to get anything out of there to like you hear in uh, uh, radio interviews or anything like that. Um, I, I don't think he was doing anything like that. I think that was just instinctual. I don't envy your position. Um, and I, I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. I'm not, you know, going to say, you know, I, I wasn't upset that Kraft immediately didn't be like, oh, no, we're going to keep Bill Belichick. You know, don't don't you dare say that. I, I'm not freaking out over that comment. So as much as a couple of my coworkers at EEI want to make it a big deal, um, I don't see anything big out of it. You know, that that's much ado do about nothing. And you even heard McAfee's explanation. Like, I wasn't trying to get anything out of there. That was just um, the conversation. I mean, he probably... Could have even said when he said, I don't envy your position, what you're about to do, uh, you know, regarding any kind of uh, change. It, it could have been about a million things, but I'm not buying into that comment. Not at all. So, I mean, nothing, nothing new for the Patriots, even after a victory. Um, and then when Pat McAfee made that comment after Robert Kraft, um, I, I don't see anything big coming out of that. Um, that's just me. That's just me. So I'm just going to. You know, hope that these last four games for the Patriots go by ridiculously fast so we can move on to the Celtics and then to the Bruins. But speaking of the Celtics, not much action for them after uh, the in-season tournament elimination on Monday. Uh, they only had one game. That was Friday. Uh, they knocked off the Knicks. How about another ejection? Uh, this time, Jalen Brown, the first time in his career. And then you heard him uh, post-game saying like, oh, that ref was so over-emotional. I don't know why the other... Others got involved. I was on the bench. Um, let me just first start out by saying the officiating just in all sports is so bad this year. It, it, it's awful. And I really hope that there is something changed about it, you know, regarding accountability for these officials. Because these calls are just getting worse and worse. And they, they seem to be, it's not just the NFL with the no fun league. The NBA is a no, I don't know. I got to think of an acronym for that. Um, but I will say for for Brown getting ejected only a week after Jason Tatum got ejected, I, something about I guess the attitude and maybe the edge about this team seems to have changed. I mean, I've seen Kristaps Porzingis pick up almost a a technical foul every other game. Then you've got Brown and Tatum getting ejected. I mean, I guess what I probably could draw it down to was that maybe they feel a little bit more outspoken considering that. There's no Marcus Smart and there's no Grant Williams because you had Marcus Smart sort of as this emotional leader. Um, you know, he he maybe would sacrifice himself doing all the talking. And then you had Grant Williams kind of also being in that role. Remember in the playoffs going against Jimmy Butler, because Brown and Tatum were, you know, he was the one going nose to nose with with Jimmy and he was speaking out about it. So I guess you know, maybe that role is something that Brown and Tatum kind of told themselves that they need to start getting involved in um, because you sort of have Drew Holiday and Al Horford as these quiet leaders. Um, you know, no one's really in that outspoken rule um, that Smart or Grant was in. So that's what I probably would would draw it 
up to as to why they're getting ejected and somehow have this sort of change in attitude. Um, you know, it's still translating on the court. I'll tell you that, you know, they won against the Knicks. They've got two straight now against Cleveland, two straight against Orlando. I mean, is it going to change? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know if it changes anything, but this is still the best record in basketball. And hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> That's what I say for that. Um, but moving on uh, from the hardwood to the ice, talking with the Bruins, they're still kind of in this middling path in the last two games. I think Brad Marchand is now, his struggles are fully gone. He's got four straight games with a point. I think the scoring has its moments and it's got its depth, but needs to be a little bit more consistent. Um, defensively, though, is where I, I really want to focus on. And I'm sure we'll get maybe Bridget Peru or someone else uh, who covers the Bruins back on so they can explain it. But just something defensively just really looks off. I mean, it seems like that the defense is trying to get bailed out uh, by Allmark and Swayman. I don't think they can do that every single time. I think they got to get much better at that because the scoring, as I said, you know, Martian's been uh, moving uh, some things. Pasternak uh, will continue to be his way. Uh, you got McAvoy, you got Coyle. Um, but then you have these young guys who are going through their struggles like Patra and Heinen and Beecher. You know, those are going to happen. So that means you got to turn the offense from defense. You got to turn defense into offense. And I don't know how they're going to be able to do that, but I think that's what Coach Jim Montgomery is going to have to focus on is uh, defensively. But, of course, no one's talking about Bruins right now. Let's talk uh, some Red Sox. And it's not just going to be me talking about it. Um, we're going to have uh, throw it now to a very fun chat that I had uh, earlier in the week with Mass Live's Chris Cotillo. Now, we did uh, a couple of times mention Seth Lugo as a possible option. I will just point out that Seth Lugo has already signed. He signed with the Royals. So if anything sounds a little bit off um, when we talk about uh, Seth Lugo um, and his potential, he already signed. So we'll freak out at it. So because uh, we did record this on a Monday. Um, so now we'll throw it to uh, an incredible chat with a uh, Red Sox insider from Mass Live, Chris Catillo. So now let's move on to the Red Sox, and we got a special guest to join us to talk a little bit of free agency. You know him as the Red Sox insider on Mass Live and a proud former Algonquin graduate. Chris Catillo joins the show. Chris, thanks for taking the time and talking a little bit of Red Sox with us. Anytime, man. Anything uh, for a fellow North Bro uh resident algonquin alum all that good stuff always good to talk to you <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of a full circle moment because this has been 10 years i think since your first uh winter meeting back in uh mm -hmm. 2013 so this is kind of a full circle moment to see you do that and now here we are you at mass live me at eei it's it's crazy how things have worked out yeah i know i'm starting to get feel old you know i was the young kid breaking into the industry and um you know, being kind of the youngest one there and now 10 years into the winter meetings and this is my ninth one. Um, you know, I'm a little more tired, I think, at the end of four days in Nashville <laughs> than I was four days in Orlando, my first one in 2013. But uh, even with the Red Sox not doing much, but that's the nature of the business, the nature of getting older, I guess. I mean, at least it was Nashville. It's a pretty good city to at least go explore. You know, I went, I yeah. went there back in March. It's a good city. <laughs> yeah, there's not much exploring uh, during the winter meetings. It's all contained in that hellscape that is the Opryland Hotel, which is absolutely massive. And obviously, um, you know, it's just it's just one of the bigger uh, hotels in the country, probably in the world. So um, we it was you know, interesting to explore that and get lost over and over and over. But they have to have it in a big place. So uh, they don't care if it's a maze for everybody who attends. 
<laughs> yeah, definitely. So, so before we get into at least the Red Sox side of things, I just wanted to get a vibe from the winter meetings. Obviously, we didn't get mm-hmm. a lot of news via transactions, anything like that. What would you right. say was the feeling around uh, the winter meetings in Nashville, regard you know, with the lack of moves that there was? I just think everybody was waiting on the big, you know, guys to drop. Obviously, Otani and Yamamoto. You know, Otani we saw over the weekend sign that massive deal with the Dodgers. I'm sure we'll get to. I think people were just waiting on where he was going to go, uh, and then eventually where Yamamoto was going to sign. You know, those guys clogging the top of the market. I think. You know, if you're another free agent, if you're Jordan Montgomery, if you're Cody Bellinger, if any of those guys, it makes sense to wait and see. You know, who who doesn't get those guys, and you know which teams are going to be aggressive. Um, you know, Toronto indicated that they have hundreds of million, millions of dollars to spend. So now those other free agents can go to the Blue Jays and say, hey, I know you have this money. Why don't you spend it on me? You know, why don't you spend it on, on my guy if you're an agent? So, you know, to me, I think that's um, kind of the storyline of, you know, waiting for the dam to break. I know some guys did sign before and there were some trades, you know, Verdugo, Soto, things that went down, some very impactful ones with the Yankees. But, um, you know, now that Otani's off the board, now that Yamamoto seems to be heating up this week, I think, um, you know, we're going to start seeing kind of more movement, and that's where the Red Sox should get involved. Well, let's talk about one of those big dominoes, as you mentioned, Otani, over the weekend, $700 million over 10 years with the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. Just want to get your initial reaction to that mammoth contract, him signing with the Dodgers, and what do you think it does for the rest of the market, possibly? How does a move like this set up the rest of free agency? It's nuts. You know, I think when we saw that number starting at the seven, $700 million, uh, it's eye-popping. Um, I think that that is not necessarily representative of what the actual deal is uh there's going to be a lot of deferrals in present day value it's it's not really 700 million dollars it's uh different and i think their cbt hits only going to be about 40 or 50 but you know he's going to get 700 million dollars over the course of however many years he's paid and that's very impressive and you know considering how much he's revolutionized the game it's hard to say he doesn't deserve that you know the dodgers were such an overwhelming favorite from the beginning we did predictions on mass live at the beginning of the winter all three of us chris smith sean mcadam and myself all had the Dodgers as a likely team to sign him. I think DraftKings had them about even to sign him. Um, you know, there's just not many teams that could offer him everything he wanted. And, and obviously, I think pretty intriguing to him not really having to move or not having to move far and being, you know, comfortable in Southern California and just moving over to a team not too far from the one he played for. So, you know, credit to the Blue Jays for making a run. I know they got their fan base excited. I think they need to make a big move now as a consolation prize, whether that be a, a, a surprise move for Yamamoto or go sign Bellinger or one of those guys. Um, but, you know, the Dodgers, I think, were the favorite all along, and they obviously had to go to a crazy number to get it done. And they, you know, will be, like every year, the favorite to uh, win next year. And they have the most talent in the game, the most money. Um, we, we often see that doesn't always work out uh, to their advantage. Yeah, for sure. I think everyone thought Dodgers, as you said, you know, West Coast, not having to move very much. Um, Going to uh, the Red Sox as we shift gears now, we've heard a lot of reports. You have said uh, a couple of names like a Seth Lugo. We had our own Rob Bradford talk about Blake Snell. Mm -hmm. It's kind of similar to what's happened last offseason to the deadline where they're in on guys, but they're not really like making the big moves. Is this sort of the same thing or is Craig Breslow and Alex Cora, to an extent, sort of changed that narrative of actually being in on guys more seriously than they were in uh, a couple of years ago. I think it's premature to kind of make any declarations on that just because, you know, it's only December 11th as we record this. If you look at the top 10, 15 free agents, more than half of them are still on the board. None of the starting pitchers on the free agent, on the trade market have been traded yet. Burns, Bieber, Glassnow, um, 
you know, all the Cease, all these guys we've heard about, Kirby and Gilbert and Mitch Keller and all these big names, none of them have been traded. And, you know, the, maybe the one guy you can say, you know, they were maybe in on but didn't really, uh, or could have gone but didn't, Aaron Nola, you know, maybe. Like, did any of these other guys fit them that went? Sonny Gray wouldn't have signed here. It would have been a horrible fit. Um and then, you know, they're not going to go out. They were never going to be in on Soto, and it didn't really make a lot of sense baseball-wise for Otani. So, you know, the guys that they're in on, Yamamoto, Montgomery, as you said, Lugo, even Blake Snell, like, until those guys are available and they're signed elsewhere, it's, it's tough to really put the interest king label on them. I think there's a lot of factors that, you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit go into that. Number one, there are more reporters that cover the Red Sox than a lot of other teams. And so we're digging at all times to see who the Red Sox are interested in. And so if we get, yeah, they've talked to us about that, you know, that's just kind of a product of they are, they have talked to pretty much every free agent. You know, they've talked to every free agent. They've talked to every team about trades because that's what, you know, every team does. I, you know, I bet, you know, we, we heard today the Royals are in on, you know, Giolito, Stroman. Maybe they'll probably talk to Jordan Montgomery, you know, if the price was right. Are they going to sign him? Probably not, but. The Royals are interested, right? Like every team's interested in, in every everybody at all times. And so I think part of that is, you know, us as reporters, there's more of us leaking that the Red Sox are, are in on guys because that's who we're checking on. I think also part of it is that, you know, teams want the perception that or agents want the perception that big market teams are in on their clients to increase the bidding. Does it help Jordan Montgomery's camp or Blake Snell's camp or whatever to make it seem like the Red Sox are involved with all the money and all the motivation? Sure. You know, does it help Yamamoto's camp when they're negotiating with the Yankees to have the Red Sox involved? Of course, and vice versa. So I ultimately think they'll come away with two starting pitchers that might be a frontline guy and a back-end guy like Lugo. Um, might be maybe two number twos. might be three guys. I think they're going to find a way. To me, it's just, you know, the market hasn't moved yet uh, for those guys at all. So it's tough to say they missed out or they were inactive because, again, we're at a very early portion of this. If we have this conversation two months from now and they are going into the season with the rotation they have right now, I'll feel very differently about that. But I just don't think that's going to be the case. Yeah, exactly what you said. It's kind of like a wait and see. And once the deals get made, we'll find out later. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned one of the names, obviously, Yamamoto, the big free agent pitcher out of Japan. We've heard mm -hmm. basically all the big market teams are in on him. Red Sox are among those teams. What would you say is the likelihood and the chances that Yamamoto does sign with the Red Sox? I think they're going to get outbid. And I think they're going to get outbid by one of the New York teams, um, the Yankees or the Mets. Um, you know, but the Red Sox, I think, are, are stealthily still involved just because they kind of have to be. Uh, if his bidding gets to $300 million, I don't see John Henry going there. So uh, if that happens, you know, again, they're the price is going to be a little too steep. I think he's the perfect fit. The frontline guy, 25 years old, can anchor your rotation for a long time. Um, but, you know, the prices are going to be absolutely crazy. And we've seen that kind of time and time again now. And, um, you know, the Red Sox are, are clearly, you know, if they, if they feel like they can use prospect capital and trade three or four prospects for a guy like, I keep going back to George Kirby and Logan Gilbert and some of, these ghosts, some of those guys in Seattle, it makes the most sense for me compared to a rental or a guy who would be around for two years. If they, you know can trade in some of this prospect capital that he spent the last five years building up without trading anybody away under Bloom, obviously. I think that makes a lot more sense for the frontline guy, um, you know, and then go get, you know, if not Montgomery, then a Lugo or a Giolito or a Waka or a James Paxton to fill it out uh, and spend a tenth or, you know, a, a fifth of what you're going to spend on some of those guys from Yamamoto. I think, to me, that makes the most sense. If you trade, I know this sucks to hear for Red Sox fans, but you trade someone like Marcelo Meyer, and two other lesser prospects and get George Kirby and then go sign 
I don't know, Lugo and maybe Giolito, like that you're in a pretty good spot and you're not you know, you're not spending 300 million. Uh, to yeah, me, yeah. that's probably their their most likely course of action if I were to guess is trying to do something like that, but you know, the prices are exorbitant on the trade market too. That's why nothing's moved yet. Yeah, plus Yamamoto just the hype just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. When we're talking, we're talking about all these pitching names and we've seen um Obviously, pitching has been a top priority, according to reports, mm-hmm. but we've also seen the Sox make some trades. Uh, they right. traded away Alex Verdugo. They brought in Tyler O'Neill. Um, as I said, pitching seems to be a top priority, as we're hearing. Is pitching really the only thing that they're focused on, or is there any other positions that you could see the Red Sox uh, bringing some players in on? Now, I think their outfield mix is, is settled. You know, I think that that is probably how they're going to go into spring training. The caveat there is if they trade somebody like Duran or Willie Abreu or Rafaela in a trade for a big-time pitcher, then that could reshuffle things. But I think if you look at it outfield-wise, you know, Abreu, Rafaela, Duran, three young guys who showed flashes last year. I think Rafaela, you know, has the highest upside, but he's a little far away. Or he's not as polished as the others just because, you know, Duran has parts of three years in the majors. Um, Abreu looks like a complete major league hitter. Rafaela needs some plate discipline work. Those three guys, you have Yoshida in the mix. You have O'Neill in the mix now as a right-handed guy who can play all three positions and play good defense as a bounce-back guy. And you have, you know, Ref Snyder still on the roster. I think that the outfield, to me, um, that kind of makes sense. There's some moving parts, some high upside, kind of the changing of the guard to some of those younger guys. So beyond starting pitching, I think the bullpen set. So I think beyond starting pitching, the real position to look at is second base. They can find a versatile guy there, somebody who can play second, hit a little bit. I think they'll go for that. I think Merrifield makes a lot of sense. He can also help you out in the outfield in a pinch. Um, so I think that that's you know the other position, but but really, um, you know the impact and you look at kind of projected win total is the projected win total going to be that much different between Verdugo and Tyler O'Neill? Probably not. Is it going to be if you get a second baseman or you roll out Emmanuel Valdez or, you know, these are kind of incremental things, but the difference between starting, you know, let's say Tanner Houck or whoever relying on Chris Sale and having to get depth pieces versus having an ace at the top of your rotation. I think that's the biggest impact thing they can do. And I think they're trying. So, you know, the starting pitching is, it doesn't to me, you know, yes, they are in on other things. Um, I've even heard them on Martin Maldonado, a backup catcher. Like, there's all these little things. But, like, to me, they could trade Verdugo, get O'Neill, get a second baseman, reshuffle the bullpen, get these depth arms, do all that. If they don't add frontline starting pitching, what's the point? You know, they're not going to be a contender. So that's the storyline. I think it has been since the beginning. And like I said, still a story that needs to play out because those guys are just still on the board. I think there was also a report coming out that's saying, like, the starting pitching, as you said, seems to be the only thing they're focusing on because they yep. have sort of this young core, like a Tristan Casas who emerged and Jaron Duran. Do you see the Red Sox as being comfortable rolling out this sort of young lineup in terms of like an everyday going out and trying to win? Or do you still think they have to go out into the market and buy those big names to help win? I mean, p- position player wise, like if you really look around, they're set. In a lot of spots, I mean, first, as you said, with Casas, he looked great. Second base is wide open. Shortstop, you have Trevor Story for four more years. Obviously, he's been a disappointment, but he's a good player. He's going to be there for four more years. And if healthy, expect to probably break out at some point. Devers, you have for, you know, I'm going to be out of gray hair when his contract's done at third base. (laughs) At catcher, you have Wong right now, who's shown to be an average major leaguer. And you have Kyle Teal, who's probably one of the better catching prospects in the game, who should be ready in a year. So, you look around the infield mix and you have literally just one spot that you're worried about. 
you get to the outfield, Abreu, Rafaela, and the infield, I didn't even touch on Meyer, who's their top prospect, and Nick York and some of these other guys. You get to the outfield, as I said, Abreu, Rafaela, Duran. Those are guys who are, you know, uh, young, five, six years away from free agency. You have Yoshida, who's four years away from free agency. Um, and Roman Anthony, who's, you know, coming onto the scene in the last year is their best, probably one, their second best prospect, or, you know, some people think number one. He'll be up in a year or two, you know, position player-wise. That's why I said, to me, it doesn't make sense go out and spend a four-year deal on Teoscar Hernandez, you know, or go out or try to like be in the market for Soto or Bellinger. Like the pipeline for pitching has nothing in it. Uh, it's part of the reason why they made the Verdugo trade, even though those guys probably aren't world beaters. Um, they're just, I think positionally, like there is a really good core there that you don't have on the pitching side. You know, I think there's some guys that, yeah, Winkowski can be intriguing. Crawford can be intriguing. Obviously Bayo is really good. And how can Whitlock have shown signs, but um you need some more certainty on the pitching staff. That's what they need to do. And I think they will. All right. So we'll get you out of here on this. Obviously uh, it's still early, as you said, in free agency, and there's still a ton of big names out there. I think Yamamoto, in my opinion, once that domino falls, then it'll really start to pick up. And we've mm -hmm. heard some of the names that have been mentioned. We mentioned Seth Lugo, Snell. Is there one name that maybe no one's reporting on that you could see the Sox going after or possibly like a dream target, whether that be, via the free agency market or in a possible trade? Yeah, I mean, I it's not a under-the-radar guy because I've said the name three times in 15 minutes on the pod, but <laughs> George, like, George Kirby, to me, you look at these guys in Seattle and, um, you know, they have a few different guys, whether it be Kirby, Brian Wu, um, Logan Gilbert. I mean, I, I forget the exacts. I could try to look it up real quick i mean i think george kirby's under control for five more years you know, he's a guy who's 25 years old has a lot of major league experience has been really good you know pedigree of a, a top pick uh and you know he is under control through 2028 you know like that's a guy that is you know not probably the name value of a chris sale when they got him a few years ago but kind of in that mold of like you have control left this guy's ace caliber stuff he has major league experience it's not a prospect it's not breaking the bank for him um you know, money-wise, somebody like that, I think, just makes a ton of sense for them. Um, you know, and it's tough to look around and kind of see a lot of those, usually these controllable, young, cheap starting pitchers are not available in the trade market. Teams want to keep them, but Seattle has a few of them. I bet they're trying. Uh, to me, that makes a lot more sense than a guy you're going to get for a year or two, you know, in that, you know, Bieber, Cease, uh, Glass now mold. I don't think they want that. You know, they can go sign you know, somebody for a year, they can go sign, you know, Seth Lugo for two, two and a half, two and an option, three years and kind of get um, that short term guy. So that the Seattle thing, I think just makes too much sense for me. Uh, the price is going to be extremely high. Sure. Uh, but that's kind of how it goes. Yeah, I did. Uh, just quick follow up. You did mention Marcelo Meyer as a possible option. Do you really think the Sox would want to give up on a guy who they drafted for Then There's so much hype on in the minor leagues. Um, I think, it's not Craig Breslow's guy, so all bets are off. That's a that's a Bloom guy, and there's less attachment. And you know, there, it's you, like to make a deal like that. It's going to have to hurt some way in some form. You're not, you know, you're not going to be able to package. Uh, there's Red Sox fans who try to deal on Twitter like I deal in my fantasy league um, <laughs> by being like, you know, well, can we give them, you know, Bobby Dahlbeck and Brian Mata and you know, a low level pitching prospect and maybe a couple of the guys we get for Verdugo. And well, if we gave them, if we give them eight 
average players, maybe it'll do George Kirby. It's like, no, you need that front line top talent. You know, you need that's, that's why the White Sox were asking for Bayo for Cease, you know? So, like, that's not what teams are asking for, and that's what you got to do. Um, I think at some point they have to do that. They haven't really done that since the sale or the Kimbrel dra- trades under Dombrowski. Those turned into a ring. So, that's kind of what it takes. You saw the Yankees do it just last week. You know, they gave up guys they didn't want to give up, including a local kid, Michael King. Um, but they got one Soto, right? So, there you go. Yeah, it's kind of a wait-and-see process. Uh, Chris Cotillo, thanks so much for the time. Uh, what's some of the stuff? Obviously, we know you're going to be keeping track of the Red Sox all off-season long, and then once we get into spring training. But what's some some of the other stuff you have coming up on Mass Live that people can look forward to? Yeah, just keep – we're going to keep rolling with the podcast, the Fenway Rundown, have a couple very interesting and fun guests this week. Someone near and dear to your heart, Joe Castiglione, will be joining us uh, after his Hall of Fame uh, news from last week so he'll be on this week we're working on a couple of other big guests before christmas so having fun with that and uh, obviously keeping everybody um up to date on the site masslive.com and twitter and all that good stuff well we can't wait to hear the big news that you break when it comes to red sox free agency or anything in the off season uh chris Catillo, thanks so much for the time and we hope to see some big moves coming for the red sox thanks again for joining yep thanks man anytime Special thanks once again to Mass Live's Chris Cotillo for a fun chat about the Red Sox. Hopefully those free agency uh, things that we're talking about, hopefully they come true. And it was nice to sort of get a sort of reunion there with uh, some fellow Algonquin Tabahawks. But we're now on to our Let's Get Local segment of the week where we end the show going to the blooper reels. And funny enough, this is sort of going to be another Let's Get Local LOL moment combined because we're actually going to go back to college game day on the set of army navy at gillette stadium and sure enough they did a rare thing and got bill belichick to speak much more than two sentences uh they had him on as a guest picker for the army navy game and honestly it wasn't even like a guest picker kind of thing they just brought him on they asked him about the significance of uh, army and navy it was a nice little reunion between himself uh, and Lee Corso, but he decides to pull a Corso, as you'll see in this video. He decides to uh, break out an old uh, Navy helmet, which has, you know, you've, you've seen the video multiple times if you're in the Boston area, or really just on a national level. The fact that Bill Belichick breaks it, breaks out of his shell, puts on this old helmet, and then he just says, uh, go Navy, beat Army, and then Lee Corso does his thing. He puts on the headgear. Then you've got uh, Corso with the mascot head and Belichick with the old helmet on. I mean, I, I right after, because I was I was producing Ken and Curtis at the time, and I saw it, and I was like, what on earth is this? Bill Belichick has this old helmet on. I mean, I definitely would have thought he would have just come up there and, and talked a lot of like football or, or memories, stuff like that, and then make the pick. But he decides to pull out the Corso, break out the old helmet, which I think just looks like uh, some like toy helmet he found at like a Target or something like that. But obviously it does have historical significance, uh, as he explained. And to see him in this sort of nature, I mean, this is the Bill Belichick that we should get at the end of his career. Not this old grumpy, you know, one sentence kind of thing. 
where we'd hear in the post game over and over and over. And you see the reaction. Everyone goes nuts when he's not that kind of coach, when he's breaking out of his shell. Um, you know, everyone said he's done a great, he does a great job explaining things when he's on television. I mean, you go back to the 100th season of the NFL when he's at the desk with Eisen and Brady and all these other guys. Um, in the championship documentaries, when he's explaining plays that happened like in the Super Bowl, like how he explained the Malcolm Butler uh, was practicing uh, the interception plays like everyone loves that. And I think he's really got to do that more often, but you can't have a tiger change its stripes, but you can at least let him play with you rather than, you know, devour you and eat you. So the fact that they got Bill Belichick to sort of go this unconditional route and decide to, you know, throw on the old helmet along with making a pick. I mean, we didn't even need to hear him talk any football. We just needed to see him in a different environment. Because let's be honest, how many environments are you going to get this kind of Bill Belichick? Not many. I mean, unless they let him do a cameo on like Saturday Night Live, which is never going to happen. Um, it that, that was just fun to watch. So Bill Belichick for breaking the standard breaking the norm and coming out of your shell having some fun uh on your appearance for college game day you've earned yourself into this week's lol moment of the week and with that it's a wrap for episode 97 of let me speak thank you everyone for tuning in wherever you are getting this podcast you're watching us on youtube or listening to us spotify apple wherever this may be make sure you're following myself on twitter or x uh instagram facebook at joe braverman pvp uh don't forget to follow chris Catillo as well he's on twitter uh with that exact handle at chris Catillo. uh you can follow this podcast uh as always on facebook and instagram just search let me speak podcast thank you everyone once again and we will see you next time for the 98th edition 98 of let me speak light up